Howdy gamers, it's Leighton here popping in to slap a big fat content warning on this episode. We talk about the John Bonet Ramsey case, the Justin Ross Harris hot car death, self-styled YouTube to catch a predator channels and post 9-11 body processing in pretty explicit detail here. This is about as close as we've ever gotten to being a true crime podcast, so listener beware, you might be in for a scare. I know for some of you, this warning is probably a compelling pitch to listen to this episode, but if your reaction is... I'm gonna pass on that, personally. That is perfectly fine, too, and probably better for your brain. Just wanted to give you a heads up. As always, the video version of this episode is available on our Patreon at patreon.com slash night, but it feels a bit craven to turn this content warning into an ad plug, so... Yeah. Here's the show. You lived in Australia for a while in Sydney, and then you moved back to New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, moved over there. I guess you could say to pursue like sort of an artistic career, I kind of wanted to try my hand at acting and stand-up comedy. And obviously a place like New York or LA would be ideal for that. Yeah. But uh, you can't just up and move there if you live in New Zealand. <laughs> Can you move freely back and forth to Australia? Yeah, we've got a good arrangement. So you don't really need a visa or anything. In fact, funnily enough, oh, great. and this is kind of odd because New Zealand is the smaller country. It's actually right. a touch harder for an Australian to move to New Zealand and live and work here. Like they need to fill out a little bit of paperwork. It's still pretty goddamn easy. But a New <laughs> Zealander can just like hop on a plane and go to Australia the same way they would if they were just going on vacation and then just oh, stay great. there and get a job. It's so nice when it's easy to move between countries. <laughs> like <laughs> I get why there are restrictions, but also it feels so anti-modern in a sense, right? Like, I get it, but can't we just kind of go around and do whatever? Yeah, in an ideal world, I guess. I mean, you're right. There are like lots of practical limitations there, so I'm not going to get like ideological it's about like it. tax reasons <laughs> and blah, blah, yeah, blah, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it would be nice. And believe you me when I say that as an Americaphile, like I would love to go and, and live <laughs> in LA or in, you know, Austin even. Uh, which yep. is obviously becoming like very, very popular at the moment. All kinds of places in the States I would love to nest, but unfortunately, it's a lot of work. Maybe I can like, con <laughs> someone there and just like divert the revenue I get from my channel and go like, someone's hired me to make this in the US. And right. <laughs> maybe we should cut that so people don't know my scheme. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know if you've picked up on this at all. Leighton, tell me if you agree with this. I think a fascination with New Zealand and New Zealanders because it is so far away and, you know, what, what do people here know about it? Lord of the Rings and Flight of the Concords, and that's pretty much it, right? Yeah. How much do you want to attribute to Lord of the Rings? Yeah. I hear people wax romantic about New Zealand as one of the places they'd want to go to if they were to relocate, especially in, you know, in light of, of COVID and everything. People for the last couple of years were like, oh man, New Zealand got it right. You know, if only we could be like them. Can you break the spell of New Zealand for us? Can you just tell us some like <laughs> yeah, shit all shit over it. about New Zealand? Yeah. It's funny what you were saying about how you think a lot of Americans have a fascination with us. That's lovely to hear, and I'm sure New Zealanders would love to hear that. I think we have a bit of a chip on our shoulder, though, collectively, like in our psyche, about the fact that we are so small and remote. 
And I think that culminates in a sort of almost like a collective Napoleon complex. (laughs) If I were to say something kind of disparaging of America, like not in a hateful way, but just sort of like kidding around, oh, Americans like this, you'd probably laugh and go like, oh, yeah, I can see what you're saying about that. Sure. If you say something in the same sort of tone, in the same vein about New Zealand or New Zealanders, I think the average New Zealander will really look at you like, you don't know what you're talking about. No, it's not us. We're actually like, so I think that would be a thing I would sort of criticize the country for. Gotcha. Yeah, I feel like in America, I don't know, Layden, do you feel like that might maybe fall along political lines a little bit, how defensive people feel about America? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I feel like, and this is a overgeneralization, of course, left-wingers would generally be like, yeah, a lot of stuff sucks. That's not so great. And Mm right-wingers might be more akin to some kind of jingoistic some jingoistic like America, love it or leave it, bitch, you know, kind of stuff. But I'm sure that's not entirely true. Yeah. Like more of that nationalist sort of tendency on the right. But at the same time, in terms of kind of denigration of the country or whatever, do you think a little bit of that might depend on who is in office at any given moment? Because like <laughs> yes, right now, for with, sure. you know, Biden Harris, a lot of Republicans would be going, country's going to hell in a handbasket, man. You know, this of that, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. What's interesting to me, I don't want to get too political right now, although I guess we can, is that somehow everybody dislikes Joe Biden and <laughs> yeah, left-wingers and right-wingers alike. I mean, there's an asymmetry there, I think, of course, mm-hmm. but the reason his approval rating is so low is because the right just hates him because he's on the left and the left hates him for many different reasons. <laughs> By the way, on the political thing, like, look, I mean, you guys are creatives <laughs> that live in Los Angeles, so I, I hope you don't mind me being too presumptuous, but I can probably assume where you land on the spectrum. <laughs> You're correct. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You are right. This is one of the reasons I'm jealous of parliamentary democracies right, where, yeah. you know, I lived in the UK for a while and got to see that in action in person, although I wasn't allowed to vote because I wasn't a citizen, but it's just so nice to have more options than two, you know, meaningful (laughs) options. And like all systems have their flaws, of course, but I think like in that particular aspect you're talking about is definitely a big positive. We have the MMP system over here and I could embarrass myself because it's complicated and I don't know all the particular ins and outs. (laughs) Oh, believe me, we don't either. So (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. Cool. Good to know. So the broad way it works though is that it's not just like, oh, we divvy up the percentage of the vote and that equals X amount of seats. It's like you have to hit 5%. So it can't be just any old, like 1% of the nation gets like some representation. No, no, no. You have to be like somewhat palatable. But if you can hit 5%, then you get a share. And so what that results in is you've got kind of like these two kind of main center-left, center-right parties, which is... Uh, Labour and National, respectfully. And then you've got like some more actually a bit far over to the kind of right libertarian side with a party called ACT and a bit more far over to the ultra-progressive, some might say hippy-dippy-ish side, the Greens. But basically what I'm trying to get at is that I think you get less of that deep resentment from pockets of the nation that feel like, oh, there's no one right. there that's, right. that's really representing my interests. Like, no, man, as long as you're somewhat mainstream. emphasis somewhat, 5%. Yeah, you can get a bit of a voice in there. And I think it does help. I used to be an academic. And I remember going to a talk once by the economist, Eric Maskin, 
who at some point won a Nobel Prize for something, was giving a talk on voting systems and kind of from a game theoretic, you know, like mathematical perspective. And apparently there's a theorem you can prove, and I'm going to get the statement of this slightly wrong, but it's something like, so you write down certain postulates that every voting system should have whatever they are. Every person gets one vote, something like this. And you can prove that there does not exist any perfect voting system in which most people get what they want. Like, right. this is a mathematical theorem. And he he posited several different voting systems. So, you know, there's complicated bullshit like the Electoral College over here. There's first past the post. There's, you know, all sorts of different stuff. But my favorite one was something that he proposed as a actually pretty fair voting system, which is the following. The idea is here you're voting for one office for one person, all right? So everyone casts a ballot, everyone gets one choice, and there is one winner for that position, all right? Kind of like a cabinet? Like a president. Like you're electing the president of a country. People can vote for whoever they want, but at the end, there's one winner for for this particular position. Okay. So here's a voting system, Okay. Everybody writes down their choice on a ballot. Everyone gets one choice. You write down the name of your candidate on a ballot. All these ballots go into a giant tumbler, like at a bingo event or something like that. Someone reaches in, pulls out one name, that's the winner. (laughs) And it turns out that this is actually not too unfair. You can, you know, quantify how unfair certain voting systems are. Because the odds the person will be pulled is the, I see, okay. That's right. Because if (laughs) 99% of people all vote for one person, the odds that that person is going to get picked, the more people vote, the better the chances are that they're going to get picked, right? Mm, I get it. But the obvious, I mean, I'm no genius for pointing out the flaw in this. Right, (laughs) right. The flip side of that is that the room for an astronomically unfair right. result is hyper-increased. Like if it were that situation where 99% of people put, the, you know, guy A, yes. if the 1% comes up where guy B gets pulled, then yeah, 99% yes. of the country don't get what they want. Yeah, so we, we elected Ghostface from the Murder Everybody Party yeah, yeah, for yeah, yeah, president, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And it's like, well, sorry, that's exactly right. Murder Everybody Party. <laughs> It's actually not too unreasonable. No one would ever agree to this for precisely this reason. But it is interesting that mathematically, it's not super unfair compared to some other systems. To like some intensely gerrymandered shit. Or something like that. Anyway, this has stuck with me for a long time. The put a bunch of names in a tumbler, pull one out. There's the president. Have fun. You know what it reminds me? of is South Park around the time of the 2008 financial crisis. Mm-hmm. They had an episode all about the crisis and what the government was doing to deal with it, you know, bailouts and stuff like that. And so I can't remember the specific setup, but basically it's like Stan or Kyle needs to go to the government and figure out a way to sort out like the economic turmoil they're facing in South Park. And they mm-hmm. go, okay, all right, we'll implement the policy decision tribunal. And he goes, okay, that sounds great. Let's do it. So they take him into the policy decision tribunal room and they get a chicken and they cut its head off and they throw it on this kind of wheel of fortune options thing. And it's kind of <laughs> oh. runs around and eventually like dies on bailout. And they go, looks like it'll be a bailout. 
Yeah. And I thought like the great thing about that joke is you think about it and you're like, that's literally as good as what we currently do. <laughs> so we're kind of all making yes. it up as we go along. That's right. It always feels, you know, the fear is that there's some classic smoke-filled room full of oligarchs who are, you know, laughing as they mm. as they make their decisions about the peons. But honestly, it is more plausible that it's just kind of random bullshit and the stuff just happens. I think part of it is, with especially with a lot of laws, the consequences of any given law are so infinitely complex that you can't really game it out more than yeah. a certain amount in advance. And every law you pass has unimaginable consequences that will only show up. You can't foresee. Yeah, like 10 years down the road. And you're like, oh, we can't build houses anymore because, <laughs> you know, we voted to lower gas prices. What? You know, or something like that. But yeah, everybody, this is Late Night with Brian White. <laughs> Oh, wow. That was a point to choose, to introduce. Yeah, that's what I do. I choose. I make choices and I stick to them. Over here, we have Leighton Gray. That's me. It was my choice to co-host this podcast. The mm -hmm. one that just spoke, that was Brian Wecht, a mystery guest. Who are you? Hi, guys. My name is Matt Orchard, and I have a channel on YouTube, which I create videos for, which, listening to this conversation, you would have thought they're about American politics, but they're actually... <laughs> Mainly about true crime for the most part, but just any story that I can tell with publicly available footage and uh, yeah. stock footage and so <laughs> forth that is, I think, entertaining, I will make videos about it on that channel. Yeah, they are massively entertaining, and it seems like you put an immense amount of work into making these things because they're, they are so... They're so well-produced. They're so well-produced, and they're entertaining. I mean, they're long videos, but it is super watchable and they don't drag. It really feels like a very careful production. Is that true? Are you putting a lot of time in, into these? Well, thank you so much. I mean, you're putting me in a little bit of an awkward position because saying I'm a hard worker is it's like sort of like saying I'm handsome or I'm smart, you know, like it's something only other people had to say for you. But yeah. yeah, look, I will concede. I do put a lot of effort into my videos. We're all proud here of the effort we put into yeah. things. We, we put a lot of effort into the stuff we do. <laughs> but we will all also immediately deflect. So you're in good company. Yes, yes. Yeah, and part of it, I think, it just comes down to the, and most of my audience are very understanding, by the way, so I'm not saying I get a lot of this, but some people do complain about the upload regularity it does tend to be okay four weeks would be very quick it's that's what i aim for but it's probably closer to five or six for my my band which is my main job at this point we put out like a couple music videos a year on our channel look i know the algorithm blah 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 but anyone who complains about upload regularity for something that requires a lot of time and effort to put together first of all i get it you want more of the thing you like that is very nice. Totally, totally. Also, yeah. the thing's going to come out when it's ready to come out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's just what I was going to say in terms of like the workload. Because of the format I choose, which is not being in front of the camera going, hi guys, and sort of explaining things to you. Right. Which are nothing against creators who do that, by the way, but it's just not my format. There is an element of like, okay, you actually have to write out a whole script. Right. Guiding people how each step of the way goes. And then once that's done and you've voiced all of that over, for every second that you're talking, you have to find something that's visually appropriate to put on the screen sure. to guide you through that just that next 
fragment of a sentence, which just, you know, <laughs> I can't do one a week, put it that way. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, it's a decent workload. There's that and the research is tremendous. I mean, not only into figuring it out, but just finding the footage and everything like that. It seems like there's a lot of digging you have to do. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head with that. Um, I mean, <laughs> that can be a really frustrating thing as well. Like, because the last couple of videos I've put out before this most recent one took a particularly long time because I kind of got lost in the woods and really struggled with like, oh, how do I put this particular presentation together? I wanted like the next couple after those to be like, let's just choose an easy case, right? That's just yeah. simple. You know, it's a murder. You got caught. You see this, see that. That worked out with Chandler Holderson. I managed to get that out about four weeks after my upload before that. And the wow. next one I've picked up is a case about a woman called Pamela Hupp. Because again, I was like, well, we know exactly what happened. We've got the perp and everything. But then I start reading about it and go kind of, wait, what? And we like, what? Did that happen? And holy shit, how could that? And it ends up being this spiral where you didn't realize just how yep. much work you were cutting out for yourself. But now if you put it down, you've just burned like two and a half weeks, you know, so you kind of have to just commit to it. But yeah, the research is something that can really spin you out. You kind of go in thinking you've got one thing on your hands and then discover that you actually have to go through, you know, down three or four separate wormholes to actually figure out what you're even putting together. What was that process like in particular for the John Bonet Ramsey video? Because <laughs> I can only imagine. That's one of the few cases that I had a pre-existing fascination with. I wouldn't even describe myself as a huge true crime guy before I got into this line of work, but I was always really interested in that particular case. So I knew that that was a mindfuck. I, maybe not as much of a mindfuck as I came to understand once I really did a deep dive on it. But I kind of prepared myself for that by while I was making other videos and like the six months leading up to really taking that one on, I read several books about it from different perspectives so I could kind of acclimate to it. And then I also prepared for a longer put together. So I actually gave myself like a solid eight full weeks to oh, make wow. that once I actually picked it up in earnest. But yeah, with Jean Benet, that was one where I picked it up kind of thinking one thing, then by the middle of it kind of thought something else, then toward the end of it thought something else again. Can you be specific about what those some things were? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Sorry, that'll be annoying to listen to. Yeah. <laughs> Brian is not like a true crime person. I very much am. So I'm sure once you start throwing around acronyms, Brian might lose it with JDI and BDI and RDI and all that shit. Yeah, I don't, I don't know any of that stuff. Yeah. So yeah, one of the most famous cases in the last century in the US, essentially Boxing Day morning, the day after Christmas, the mother from this kind of well-to-do family in Boulder, Colorado, calls the cops saying, oh my God, you know, my baby has been kidnapped. And so obviously, you know, the police go and investigate that and they say, hey, you know, we found this ransom note left for her. And it's this kind of sprawling, bizarre ransom note. But again, okay, just sort of take it. We are it a small a, foreign faction. <laughs> yep. And for all we know it is. So let's just, you know, let's keep investigating. <laughs> And so they do, and, you know, they're waiting for the kind of phone call for the ransom money and whatever. But at some point that morning, one of the detectives tells the father, John Ramsey, who kind of looks restless, look, take your mind off of it as best you can by just searching the house from uh, top to bottom. You know, who knows what you might find of importance. 
So him and his friend Fleet White go and do exactly that. And the first stop they make is to the basement of the home where in short order they find, and basically you could call it the storage room of the basement, jean Benet Ramsey, six-year-old little girl's lifeless body, uh, you know, lying there in the basement. And obviously at that point, people start to become very suspicious, as you would imagine. You know, you say to his kidnap, not only is she found dead, but she's found dead in the house. And they've, you know, maintained their innocence ever since. And basically what you call the intruder theory, I don't think anyone believes it actually was the representative of a small foreign faction. There's not make straw me here or anything. <laughs> well, it's, 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 it's such a huge oh case. It's such a huge case. There probably is someone out there, but very few yeah. people. Yeah. It remind me, this is early, mid 90s. Is that right? It's 96, I believe. I see. Yeah. I was in college at that point. I think of John Bonet and OJ as happening at about the same time. Yeah, you'd be right, wouldn't you? I think OJ is like 94? 94, I think, is OJ, yeah. Could be wrong about these, but they're very like mid-90s kind of things. Yeah. It's kind of funny. I mean, that show, American Crime Story, like all of the stories they've chosen so far are in the 90s. So it just goes to show it. It's sort of <laughs> yeah. like the decade for these kind of like sensational yeah. things. But um, look, what intruder theorists would postulate, well, I mean, there's all kinds of different subsets, but I think the overarching general broad idea is that it was some kind of sadistic sociopath pedophile who were just out of their mind and wrote this kind of sprawling ransom note in the basement or whatever, maybe while the parents were out at a Christmas party they attended with the kids earlier in the day or something like that. But they weren't part of a foreign faction. They were just kind of crazy and out of their mind and kind of, you know, and acting out some kind of bizarre fantasy in their head or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then they intended to kidnap her and take her away. Maybe they were just trying to taunt the family. Maybe they really did want a ransom payout. Who knows? But something went wrong, probably in the basement, couldn't get her out. You know, you get the idea though, right? She's, yes. she's dead. <laughs> they have to kill her before they get out of the house. And that would be the general idea. But other people say, absolutely, you know, bullshit. This was staged. By people, do you mean like the populace or you're talking about actual investigators? Well. Oh, well, one of the most prominent intruder theorists was, he's, he's passed now, but was actually one of the most experienced homicide investigators that was involved with the case. A guy called Lou Schmidt, he had, you know, solved something like 50 homicides in his career or whatever, and through kind of a multitude of different reasons, he put it together that the arrows don't actually point to the family. But yes, there have definitely been voices of dissent to that from various sure. other law enforcement professionals. So there's like a theory, you know, one that was really made popular by a CBS special, which I actually don't hold in very high regard, holds that it was actually the, I think he was like eight years old at the time, her eight-year-old brother Burke. Yeah. And her got into like a tussle, like a, an argument, a squabble during the night, and he like smacked her over the head. And basically the parents find her a little bit later, you know, as the sun's coming up sort of thing and decide it. You know, it's too late to save her, but we don't want our son put in some kind of institution. So they then stage everything else to protect him. Then there's another theory that the mother, Patsy, got really mad at her because she had a chronic bedwetting problem and like didn't mean to kill her, but in sort of a fit of, you know, the last straw, just stretched too thin, gives her a big push, and then she falls and hits her head on a, the side of a bathtub or something. And then she stages everything to try and hide it from her husband and the rest of the family. And then there's the, you know, John Ramsey did it, which there's a lot to that one that we're just not going to talk about what that theory is on 
this episode right now in detail, even though... I think I understand. Yeah, I'll put my cards on the table. Uh, I am of the mind that it was that one that we're not going to talk about. But I don't know, Matt, you said that your perspective changed as you went through researching this video. Yeah, but yeah, now that we've covered that, and yet yeah, Leighton's right, and I was going to stop myself and go like, you, <laughs> okay, can, you, can, you can put it together in your head kind of what would have happened. Sure. Yeah, that he would have wanted to hide something, put it that way. Right. Mm. Look, going into it, as I've read about it casually over the years, I actually was not strongly, but lent ever so slightly toward the intruder theory. Then as I started to read more about it and kind of in that early to mid stages of my kind of researching and writing process, I sort of got to the point of like, no effing way. Like there's just too much (laughs) is wrong. It's too hard to get someone in that house. And also I think they're just so obviously lying at various points. There's just times where they'll say or do a thing and you'll just go, I can't put that down to just a mistake or a foggy memory. That is, it just seems too deliberate. It's too off, right? But I never thought the John theory was very believable. It it seemed too extreme. There wasn't anything Mm -hmm. in his history or whatever that would seem to suggest that that was a real possibility. And then I stumbled across this ebook by a guy called Doc G, who's mentioned referenced in the video. And I just must have like stumbled across a blog post by him. And I kind of went, oh, if I'm doing a bit on the Ramsey case, I should at least like consider the JDI theory to see what they've got to say. (laughs) And so I picked it up and I'm a slow reader. I read that book. It's a small book to be fair, but it's still over a hundred pages. I read that in like one night, just could not take my eyes off of it. It was just so fascinating and put it together in a way. Is this the same guy who did like a bunch of Reddit posts about it? Because I think I might've also read this ebook that you're talking about. <laughs> well, a lot of people have done a bunch of Reddit posts about it. I'm not sure if he was ever big on what Reddit. What a shock. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He was definitely big on forums, though. He was a forum poster. I think Web Sleuths was sort of where he came up. (laughs) Wow, Web Sleuths. Oh, my God. (sighs) Yeah, going back, right? But anyway, I came around to thinking, Jesus, you know, maybe. But then, look, as I said before, it really is such an extreme allegation. And it's a leap, put it that way. It's a leap, but also finding a tiny child murdered in the basement is also a leap, you know? That's one thing I've always kind of said to summarize the case is that no matter what option you choose, you're going to have very, very, very serious problems to answer for. Like, yeah, there's no theory that kind of seems to work perfectly with everything. So you're right. I thought you wrapped it up really nicely in the video as well. What a case. Like the further down that you dig, there's so much here. No one's ever going to know. What shook out in the end? Was anyone convicted? Did they quote unquote solve it? (laughs) No. Oh, no, 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 no. It remains like one of those incredibly frustrating cases. So a grand jury back around the time, they did vote to indict the Ramses, which people make a bit much out of that. And it's very easy to indict someone. It's very different from convicting them. Yeah. I mean, trust me, you can convince a grand jury of pretty much everything. Yeah, it's like it sounds really bad. It's a big soundbite for the Ramses did it crowd, but it's not quite as bum, bum, bum (laughs) as some people might think. But the funny thing is, though, although the grand jury indicted them, they never actually went to trial. So the state put on all the effort of convening a grand jury and going through all that and then getting the go-ahead to indict them. And then the higher-ups went, "Eh, no, we're not doing that. We're not taking the trial. This remains an unsolved case. 
And so it is to this very day. We just really don't know for sure. Although there are people in every camp that are 100% convinced that their camp is, is right. Of course. And which camp are you in now? Here's the crux of where I stand. I think with a thing like this, there's nothing you can come to where you've got no problems to answer for. You've got to look at the hardest evidence we have. Like, what do we know for sure, right? We know for sure a little girl died. We know for sure that she was found in that basement. We know for sure, okay, this is physical, undeniable fact, that she had a massive head fracture, a big gash missing you know, if you've got the stomach for it, you can go up online and look at the actual skull. I'm going to pass on that personally. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. And a lot of people will. Not only do you have this big gash, but you've got this eight and a half inch, I think it is, skull fracture. And I've described it as looking like kind of the fault line after a massive earthquake. I mean, just split in half. Ugh. And I'm not an expert on blunt force head trauma, but there are people who are, who have absolutely come to the same conclusion I have, that that is not a relatively sickly eight-year-old boy in a moment of frustration swinging a flashlight. It is not a little girl being pushed by her mother and hitting the back of her head on a bathtub. That is, I think, very indicative of a grown man with using absolutely lethal direct force oh. with intention. That is, I think, the profile of the person who inflicted that, which means for me, it comes down to it's either an intruder or it's John, which are funnily enough, two of the least popular theories on either side of the spectrum. But I think it's got to be one of those just based on that hard fact. It's my conclusion. I'm genuinely shocked that so many people think Burke did it. Burke is the son. The brother, yeah. But they always point to this interview that he did when he was an adult because he is like, as people say, quote unquote, weird. Which he is, yeah. His sister got murdered and people have thought that he did it for like forever. What's weird? Like, as you're saying, Matt, like looking at hard evidence versus like, you know, this kid who his entire life has been living in the shadow of a sister that people accuse him of murdering, like, or his parents. People still fucking talk about this a lot. Mm. And for several years, it was on every tabloid every day, right? That might fuck you up. Matt, did you ever watch Casting John Bonet? You know what? I think that's at the very start of it. Once I figured out it wasn't a documentary about the facts of the case, (laughs) I kind of like, I'm not dissing it, but I was like, oh, it's Nazi thing. Never mind. No, it's very much like the impact on people in the community or like the level to which people co-opted it themselves. It does feel totally separate from the case. Yeah. But interesting in terms of the effect on a community. I was going to say, Leighton, I totally agree with you. It's funny for me to say because I partially deal in this, but I try to put qualifiers in my videos too when I'm doing it. But it's a very dangerous game to look at a person in an extreme situation, in a a bizarre situation, and try to gauge, like, are they acting appropriately for it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, what does that even mean? Yeah. Do you want Burke to be like, and then my sister, I found out she was dead. People would be like, you know, he's putting it on. If he was like, oh, yes, it was a crazy time, but I've I've moved on now. He's like way too like relaxed and normal. But the way he acts in the Dr. Phil interview, and again, I'm not saying there is any like appropriate way, but the sort of like fidgeting and the kind of awkward smiling and kind of looking around and looking down kind of seems about right for the situation you're being put in. It seems if I was an actor, <laughs> like how do you act in that? It's kind of the sort of behavior I think I might concoct to sort of paint that individual. 
I don't know. I'm very suspicious, especially of people who have not been through trauma, who point at any trauma survivor mm. and be like, that's not right. They're being weird. It's like, what the fuck do you know? And it's different for everybody. Yeah, I guess sort of on that note, I'm curious what your take is on sort of the latest in the Justin Ross Harris case in terms of sort of the more prejudicial evidence not being in this next trial, if I'm recalling correctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're obviously on the same wavelength because as we were talking about that, the, the case that absolutely came to my mind, <laughs> like, oh, maybe we should bring this up next, is Justin Ross Harris. Yeah. Hey, again, let's explain what that's about. Look, another horrible, morbid one, but it's basically a a hot car death case. So this guy, Justin Ross Harris, has his toddler son, Cooper, in the back seat of his car. And they sometimes do like a daddy-father breakfast at Chick-fil-A. And then he drops him off at kindergarten. Well, this is the routine. Then right. he drops him off at kindergarten and goes to work. But on this particular day, he claims to have forgotten that Cooper was in the back seat after he buckles him up after the breakfast and he goes to work parks in the parking lot gets out of the car goes to the office does a full day of work during a hot summer's day and you know uh, son perishes of course now he was prosecuted for murder and what the prosecution's scenario is is that justin ross harris turned out was having at least one affair but was also engaging in lots and lots of like online sexting and kind of had a sex addiction he was unhappy with his marriage, his kind of life as a suburban family man. So part of turning that around and getting out of that was getting rid of his son. It was demonstrable that he was familiar with the phenomenon of forgotten baby syndrome. So he basically planned a forgotten baby incident. I will also make a note here that the reason that that is like a sticking point is because he had watched a video on a vet locking himself in a car with a, you know, temperature reader and is like, here is what it is like to sit in a hot car. So don't leave your dogs in the car. And Matt plays some of that in the video. And like, it is a brutal watch, even though it's just like a grown man in a hot car. It was really difficult for me to watch. Wait, how, how do they know he watched the video? They have like his watch history or something? Oh, you can definitely look at their logs and everything. They did definitely demonstrate it. And I think they demonstrated he watched it more than once from memory. Don't quote me okay. on that. I have to go delete some logs. <laughs> <laughs> I think a friend might have sent it to him. There was another thing, and I might be actually conflating the two. This is very controversial. This is something that a lot of people cite as like prosecution malpractice in the case. They had records of him looking at the subreddit Child Free. Which I tell you that, right, your jaw kind of drops like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. But then when you dig a little deeper, it's like, yeah, because his friend emailed him the link, like his kind of like child free, like, uh, sucks being a dad guy at work. And he replied to the email saying grossness. Well, look, look I, I love my daughter very, very, very much. There are many occasions where I'm like, man, whew, might be nice not to have a kid right now. So... I can understand. The murdering your child? <laughs> Look, I'm not willing to take a stand definitively against it, okay? I'm just saying. Sorry, is Late Night's official stance that child murder good, actually? Look, I, I'm not willing to come down on either side of this issue. I know we have a strong listener base of child murderers, and I don't want to offend them. I know Leighton's joking, but I totally get your point, Brian. I'm not a father, but I do know that every single parent has had that moment of like, 
If I could wave a magic wand right now and just not have to have this responsibility for half an hour or something. My point is, I can understand living a little vicariously and looking at, I don't know what our child free is, although I assume it's people who are glad they don't have children. It's a lot of annoying antinatalists. Right. Yeah. Quote unquote crotch goblins ranting. Yeah. (laughs) Which I'm sure is awful. I can understand looking at that vicariously and not having it be innately incriminating. Yeah, totally. Also, I love my daughter very much. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Julie noted. Yes, thank you. (laughs) We kind of segued into that based off of the like, this isn't how a person would act because we have interrogation footage and also footage of him. Is it directly after finding Cooper or is it like in the parking lot? Let's pick up on that. So yes, there is footage of when the squad car first pulls up to the parking lot. So he realized on his drive to a movie theater what had happened, what you know, he alleges he realized. Anyway, you've got the footage of the squad car first pulling up to him in that parking lot. Look, these things are subjective, but to me, that absolutely seems like a father who is absolutely beside himself with abject horror at what has just happened. Yeah. You got him in the back of the squad car, I'd say same thing. When he gets into the interrogation room, though, for the post-interview, and this is part of why we brought it up, talking about Burke Ramsey, you know, you shouldn't judge someone for, is that how you're supposed to grieve or whatever? So this is a real example of on one hand, on the other hand. Like, on one hand, while I say that, on the other hand, is there some kind of limit? Yes. Because his behavior in that room is, it's so weird. Look, it might just be grief manifesting in bizarre ways, but right. something's missing if you don't look at that and kind of go, hmm, you know, I feel like something might be amiss here kind of thing. There's clearly a spectrum of reactions, and there are definitely things I could imagine that are outliers where you're like, no, uh-uh. You know, there's got to be a limit. It's just a very fungible kind of thing. What do you think about that, Layden? I don't want to be presumptuous. Like, what did you think of the interrogation room footage? It's weird. As somebody who has watched a lot of interrogation footage, and not like that makes me a fucking expert or anything, but just it stands out. The sort of bouts of sobbing and then drinking water and then back to the bouts of sobbing and then sort of like the jocularity with the interviewers It's hard for me to look at that in a vacuum and not think about the other aspects of the case because I think that the sex addiction stuff, I think that trial-wise that had an effect that it probably should not have. But it is hard to ignore that information from an outsider's point of view of knowing about the video of that. Even when his wife comes in, also very bizarre. Totally. It's like I can't even quite put my finger on why it's so weird, but it just doesn't seem right. What's your thought? Well, in terms of the weirdness of the wife, I don't think it's that cerebral. At one point she goes, would you be interested in having another kid or whatever? And you're kind of like, Jesus Christ, lady. Like, But hey, look, that's a good like counterpoint to what we've been saying, right? Because there's literally no reason to believe that she was involved in any kind of plot. So it just goes to show like sometimes people say and do just bizarre things in extreme situations. So who knows? I'm not saying that his behavior in that room convinces me he's guilty. It's just, it is bizarre enough that it gives me serious pause, you know? Yeah. I guess the thing that's more glaring to me is like the Home Depot parking lot security footage where he 
literally opens the door to the car and throws something in. And also sort of the breakdown of like what he would be able to see in a rear view mirror. And like, mm. you did a great job of, with that stuff in your video, but that all is very like, because mm. I think if it was an accident to get charged with murder on top of that, well, that's fucking horrific, but mm-hmm. just grim. I guess I will just say to explain to people who are listening the ultimate outcome, because that's what you alluded to when we just first started talking about the case. So ultimately he was convicted, life in prison, no parole. Just recently, like I think literally a month and a half ago or something, the Supreme Court of Georgia overturned it on the grounds that they decided that the stuff about the sexting and everything wasn't directly relevant to the charges. It was uh, unduly, I forget the, uh, the legal term. But it shouldn't have been part of the trial. So he's not free, but he gets another trial, basically, unless the state decide they don't want to pursue the case again, which I suspect they probably will not decide that and he will will end up seeing a redo of that whole thing, which is really interesting. I really don't know how that would wind up without the sexting stuff in there. He's out of jail now or he's still in jail? No, no, no. I said he's not. Yeah, sorry. I said he's not. So they've overturned the conviction, but that doesn't mean he's free to go. It just means that he gets another shot at it. Oh, wow. Okay, you can overturn a conviction, but you stay in jail, and basically that just means now you have to prove you're innocent? Is that right? I guess in a lot of situations like that, Brian, I assume you actually would get bail and be able to like await your new trial. Yeah. But his sexting charges involved a minor, so he's still got mm-hmm. serious ah, time to serve right. on different charges anyway, so that's why that doesn't really factor into this one. Gotcha. But um, yeah, it looks like the most likely outcome will be it's a new trial. And I think it's a very interesting question. And this is almost like to sort of defend the prosecution stance and why the sexting stuff should have been in there. It's like, well, their theory is that he didn't want to be a family man anymore. And the sexting sort of laid the groundwork for why that was a plausible explanation. If you don't have that, to me, you don't have any groundwork to lay for that that explanation for motive. So it would be very hard to overcome that, I would think, just going, oh, I just think he just, you know, just wanted his kid dead. No, no reason. Or here's a reason, but we've got nothing to support it that we can put in front of you. I would think for me as a juror, that would in and of itself be enough to give me reasonable doubt. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see. For sure. How long ago did this happen? It's relatively recent, right? Oh, 2014. Okay. I don't want to make you spoil anything that you have in the works, but are there cases that you were really fascinated by that you maybe like don't want to do a video on or just feel like it wouldn't be the right format? Do you have any like pet cases or topics? Plenty because I mean, the format that I use is the kind of JCSSQ style of crime video making. We can talk about more about that broadly if you want, but sure. It relies on, if not interrogation footage, then like network TV interviews or courtroom footage or just anything like raw material. I don't actually hold a grudge against anyone who who does this because I totally get if you're not making them, you you don't get this limitation. But I often get messages and stuff with case recommendations. And again, you're more than welcome to do that. I've got a Google Doc where I keep them, so I appreciate them. But the thing that is sort of like a bit of an annoyance with it is that literally, I think nine times out of 10, it'll be a recommendation of a case that's certainly interesting, 
but it's only got articles. There's like literally not a, a whiff of the kind of material that I actually need to put them together. So like, how would you make the thing? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I mean like the hardest one I've done on that is like the David Bain case in New Zealand. And this is why I don't do New Zealand cases basically. I'm, <laughs> well, not that I have a policy, but I've only done one and it'll probably be the only one I ever do is that we just don't release material like that over here like you guys do. So with that one, it was just like a, a string of news reports and a 911 call and just stitching it together with freaking metaphorical duct tape, really, and just pulling it off. So that was the hardest one to do because of that reason. And it's like the best New Zealand case to make a video like that about. So there's tons of examples of cases like that, which are super interesting, but they just don't have the prerequisite material to pull off. Have you ever submitted a uh, FOIA request for anything? Funny you ask that. The <laughs> case I'm working on right now, there's already quite a lot of stuff in the public domain, like it's doable, but there are fucking really interesting interviews that I know exist because <laughs> clips of them have been included in documentaries, so they're out there, but they're not on any of the raw interrogation channels on YouTube. They're not in mm -hmm. public domain. So I've been working with, I think you'd call him a PI, but yeah, a guy in the States who's able to file FOIA requests, and we're, we're in the process right now. Right, because you have to be American to file one in the States, right? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. So, uh, yeah, we're working on it. We're trying to get our hands on, like, some things that would really help bring this project to the next level. Yeah. So, yeah, doing that, working on that actively for the first time right now. Wow. Those are always so interesting to me because every once in a while, like, sometimes you get the, like, everything's just blacked out except, like, prepositions or something. Mm, like the Kennedy assassination. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> but every once in a while, it's like, oh, shit, really? This is amazing. You know, like, you get something that's really substantive. And they're like, yeah, I guess we had to release this because that's the law. It's incredible when those things work out. Mostly because I can't believe someone didn't destroy it when they had the chance, I guess. <laughs> the thing I'm interested about with this one, because yeah, the way you say, oh, we have to. I don't know exactly how it works. I haven't looked into the mechanics of uh, the Freedom of Information Act, but my broad understanding is that, yes, if it doesn't actively interfere with like an ongoing investigation or, you know, something like that. Right. Then we are actually obligated to give it to you if we have it and you ask for it. Something yes. like that. It might be only for government entities. I mean, you can't FOIA a private corporation, I think. No, yeah, I wouldn't think yeah, so. I mean, they can do whatever the fuck they want. But if it's like a government thing, then there are different rules where I think they have to give it to you. But I could, I could be wrong. I have no idea what I'm talking about. And maybe if a private company was like investigated by the government for a thing and for discovery, they got these documents, then maybe they would fall in it. So maybe there's stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, who the hell knows? Yeah. But yeah, with this one, I would think if my understanding of it is correct, I would think the stuff that we're asking for is totally within the purview of the sort of like what I outlined. Yeah. But at the same time, it makes the stuff I'm looking for, the cops come off very bad in it because we know the guy's innocent now and they go after him hard so i'm just wondering will they try and find some kind of way of weaseling out of it like you can't have that cops way. never <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah we'll see we'll see i'll be really heartbroken if i don't get it though can you can still make a video out of the case but it'll be the difference i think between like an amazing video and a you know fine yeah. Yeah. I, I think one of the things that's so great about your videos is you always having the footage or the receipts to like slap up. And it's also interesting, like the directions that you go in videos that are beyond sort of the true crime milieu of like the predators catching one with the footage from the different 
Catching Predators YouTube channels, which like that one was harder for me to watch than a lot of the other, like say child murder videos. The YouTube style to catch a predator people doing what they do in their own weird power trippy way. Yeah, I get that from a lot of people. It's a very common sentiment with that one. And some people complain, like in terms of like getting through it, they complain that the fording wasn't as aggressive as it should have been with Rami, who's kind of like the main villain of that <laughs> that video. A guy called yeah. Rami Odeli, who got arrested recently, by the way, as the video predicted. What? Wasn't false imprisonment, but it was like terroristic threats or something like that. Oh, shit. I called her. I said, you're playing with fire here, buddy. <laughs> and yeah, I came to fruition. But I had that thought as I was making it, but it was like, oh, to really like get across just how scummy this is you sort of need to let it roll for a bit in that yeah. in that section that was when i almost dropped like over a week into kind of trying to figure it out and really considering just going fuck it because i wasn't quite sure what i wanted to say because to catch a predator always weirded me out a little bit in terms of like not that i feel bad for the guys but like we're turning something into a form of entertainment which just yes. this isn't a game show yes exactly like fuck these fuckers however yeah i probably shouldn't be watching this on tv in this <laughs> yeah. way 100 percent. yeah but i wasn't quite sure how to articulate that because it's hard to articulate that without it slipping into sounding like you are kind of saying, oh, we shouldn't be doing this to these guys because it's mean and I feel bad, you know, and that's right. not what I was trying yeah. to say. And then it was like, it must have been like, you know, I'm 24 hours away from quitting and I found Rami El Daly's channel and I was like, <laughs> I found a guy who makes the point for me. Like, it's like, okay, great. I don't have to say it anymore. People will get it now. Yeah, Brian, for context with yes, this please. one, actually, Matt, do you want to explain it? <laughs> Just a second. This is a first on this podcast. I'm going to lower my desk. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Why have you not been doing this every episode? Wait, no, I have, to, I, have to, I'm sorry, I have to have to put it back up again. <laughs> Wait, no. Can you stay sitting as it goes on? Wait, now, now I'm in the middle. Oh, sorry. Yeah, like this. Yeah. <laughs> fucking great. All right. Now he stays like that the rest of the episode. Now this is podcasting. <laughs> that's nice. the kind of hot video content you can only get here on our patreon that's exactly right oh man it feels good to sit down sorry yes continue please contextualize but basically this video is about you know to catch a predator ended at a certain point but yep. then youtube still exists and there are plenty of youtube channels where people are taking up like chris hansen's role by trapping pedophiles and whatnot and then mm. filming it but the way that some of them do it is incredibly cool. questionable. Oh, yeah, sorry. As evidenced by, you know, this main guy who's the main quote-unquote villain of this video, as Matt says, getting arrested because you end up sitting through a lot of very painful stuff where not only are they going after the guys that they're catching, but also like calling their wives or their mothers and like really it feels like psychological torture and like, especially when it's yeah. wives or mothers or whatever else, it's like, wow, they are not the ones who are here to meet up with a 13 year old. And how does this help anybody other than like your own weird little power trip? Are people doing this on TikTok? 
Probably. Feels like someone would have taken this to TikTok and done something horrible. Well, they've got their own like terminology and like phrases in the community too. Like they're called a catch. So everyone's like, nice catch, man. So it's like a whole community. It's not not just this guy. There'll be like a Wisconsin chapter and a Michigan chapter and, you know. So yeah, it's this whole like kind of subculture online. Yeah. If you just search predator catchers on YouTube, you will find like clickbaity YouTube thumbnails, but it's this. I mean, being fully honest, even the idea of this happening bothers me so much. Like the idea of predators being out there bothers me so much that I can't even watch (laughs) the To Catch a Predator video. It's so deeply upsetting to me that I can't watch this stuff. Well, I guess on that note, we should move on from the thing. But just one thing I wanted to mention about, which I just found, I don't even have a theory. I just wonder. It's just (laughs) strange. When they're doing their baiting things, they have a thing when they're like, oh, how old are you? The answer is always, always, in every single example I've seen, turning 15 in November or turning 15 in like a couple of months from now. Mm-hmm. They never try and make out like they're a 13-year-old girl. It's always that specific age. And it's always, I'm turning this age. And again, I don't know why that is, but they've kind of figured out a formula for what gets the highest volume of replies, and it seems to be that. Yeah, what a fucking nightmare. (laughs) Do they convict these people? When they catch a predator, what happens? Do they basically just dox them and make their lives hell? What can they do? It varies, and this is like where one of the biggest defense lines come from, is like, hey, bro, I've got convictions. You know, I've got this in my rap sheet, which, hey, fair enough. I mean, it is a good thing that you did actually get someone held accountable by the law. I'm not going to sure. pretend otherwise. You didn't need to turn it into a kind of form of YouTube entertainment along the way. You could have done it without the group. But no, no, for sure. Yeah, yeah, if you do that and then end it with like a remember to smash that like, like, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, just do the noble thing and then just shut the fuck up about doing the noble yeah. thing, right? That's right. It seems like the people really doing the noble thing maybe aren't bragging about it quite as much. Yeah. And there'd still even then be arguments about vigilantism and it's like, well, we have official processes in place for reasons or whatever, but. That's right. This guy might be out on the street again because you didn't, you know, do things in a way to actually put them behind bars or whatever. Right. Which, yeah, is why I don't get too bad out of shape about it. It's like, it's kind of gray. (laughs) I kind of see both sides, whatever I want. I wouldn't make a video about criticizing that. But to answer your question, Brian, the answer is like sometimes yes, but frankly, the uh, impression I got is that it's incredibly rare for every like hundred, probably more catches that you see online, probably an actual honest to God conviction came out of it maybe one time. There's like rules about what evidence you can use. And I would assume these guys are not being super careful about that. Well, yeah, that's the other thing. Like a lot of these channels have like, you know, three, four, five uploads a week. Oh, that's the most upsetting thing you said yet. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What can I say, man? But um, if you're turning around that kind of volume of videos, you're obviously not crossing your T's and dotting your I's to make what you're accumulating as ironclad as it can possibly be. Sure, sure. For that reason as well, I imagine there's not a lot of things going all the way to the gavel coming down. Yeah. Interesting. I think this is a good time to move on to some segments. Unless I know, Leighton, you had a ton of questions for Matt. No, we should do segments because if you let me go off with questions, this episode will be four hours and I'm not sure anybody (laughs) wants that. So we should do segments. Great. Our first segment is our pop culture recommendation segment. This is where you get to recommend a book, a movie, a video game, 
music, whatever it is, something you've been enjoying recently. This segment is called What's Poppin', and it does have a theme song, which we insert in post, so you won't hear it right now. But it does go here. What's poppin'? What's poppin'? All right. That was the What's Poppin' theme song. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, actually, Matt, that's a good question. If you heard the What's Poppin' theme song, if you had heard it, what do you think your reaction would be? I had. I've listened. Uh, oh, you did hear it. Of course. I listened to a few episodes. I did my homework. Yeah. What did you think about it? So, you know, good, good tune, man. Great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. I mean, I appreciate that. Yeah, I wouldn't say like, my God, that is the new Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band. I wouldn't say like, that is like, okay, that is a piece I, of trash. I'll go like that. You know, that is a song that was appropriate for the context in which it's being used. I accept that as a very high compliment and I thank you for it. <laughs> wow. I didn't set out to reinvent a genre with the What's Poppin' theme song. And you Some could argue that it did, but- I wouldn't make that argument myself. So I think that's a great reaction to it. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate that. All right, Layton, what's popping? What's popping for me is a book called Working Stiff by Judy Melanick and TJ Mitchell, which is written by a lady who was a medical examiner in New York City for a while. I think Rachel read this too, yeah. Oh, shit. I got to have a book club with your wife. Really, really enjoyable, just all about autopsies and fucked up ways to die in New York City and also a good bit about like processing bodies after 9-11 and a real breezy quick book if you have a strong stomach and if you are even the tiniest bit queasy this is not what's popping for you so if you've gotten to this point in the episode then maybe you have the stomach <laughs> for it listeners well yeah was in terms of morbid so I'm sorry to drill down on it but I'm just genuinely kind of fascinated Processing bodies after 9-11. So are you talking about like figuring out who a person was with basically just ash or? Well, not ash. It was like truckloads that the office was getting. Oh it was rare that it would be a full body. It was often like one tooth, one part of a hand, one. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Lots of stuff like finding checks embedded under a piece of flesh. So that kind of thing. Hmm. Ah. Also, apparently the worst way she had seen anybody die was getting steamed to death. Oh my God. After falling in a manhole. Oh my Fuck. God. Yeah. So if you just want to read about a lot of like weird anatomy stuff, it was so enjoyable. I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, Working Stiff, good book. That's what's popping for me. Cool. Matt, what's popping for you? I mean, I knew I was going to love it, but just like floored by uh, Nathan Fielder's new program Dude. for HBO called The Rehearsal. You literally took mine also. That's exactly oh. what I was going to talk about too. Yes. That's we exactly what I was going to talk about too. Yep. <laughs> keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Has that ever happened before? That might be the first time that's ever happened in 128 episodes. I'm not sure. It might be. Yeah. I mean, it's just, if anyone's not already familiar with Nathan Fielder, he used to have the show Nathan Few, which by the way, if people haven't seen that. Like, what the fuck are you doing? Thank me later. 
it's just amazing. The premise of Nathan for you is that it's almost like a parody of reality television, yep. like a Mr. Fix-It kind of show. He'll go to businesses that are struggling with a, you know, kind of problem you'd expect. And then he'll take like a simple kind of normal problem a business would face and then apply this massively impractical <laughs> solution to yes. it. He's standing up for the little guy. Is the idea, yeah. right? <laughs> but yeah, they'll actually see the massively impractical solution through. So the rehearsal kind of builds on a similar sort of premise, except instead of businesses, now it's more kind of just people, like the kind of problems that a person might have. And the way that they deal with it is basically simulating something that no one would be able to simulate without an HBO level budget. And they go and they, and they do that. What did you think of the first episode, Brian? So I've seen the first and the second now. Have you seen the second? I have seen the second, yeah. Okay, great. In the first episode, there's a guy who has a confession. He's been lying about something and he wants to confess to one of his trivia teammates about it. And so his plan is to meet her at a bar at trivia night and kind of in the middle of the round, like, confess what he's been lying about. And it's a pretty small thing, by the way. Astonishingly small. It's amazing that this has been nagging on this guy for so long. Totally. <laughs> it's a, basically a little white lie, and yeah. he just wants to come clean about it. And they take this bar, and they recreate it exactly, <laughs> like on a soundstage. And they do it at such a level of detail where it seems impossible Someone went in and took a million pictures, scoped this place out, and rebuilt it. The scale of, of what they did, like you said, the budget that it took to do that, given the teeny tiny nature of the problem, is really what the brilliance is on that. And it seems more kind-hearted than Nathan For You. People who don't like Nathan For You typically find it a little mean-spirited, which I think is a fair criticism at times. I disagree with that, but I get it. Like, I get why people feel that way. Yes. In the rehearsal, he's still Nathan Fielder, but he's a little bit softer, but occasionally the, wait, are you fucking with me? thing kind of <laughs> comes out. And to me, the drama of this show is not whether the person in question is going to practice their thing and get it right. It's what the fuck is Nathan Fielder thinking and how is he going to react to any situation? How nice is he going to be to this person? And is it going to turn at some point because of his personality? I feel like there's this constant threat that he's about to like really make you feel bad. And he's not doing that so far on the rehearsal. And I don't think he will, but there's this simmering tension of the whole show, which is like, where is this dude coming from? Which I think is the most fascinating part. I mean, the kind of through line gag in Nathan for you is that this whole show is actually just a means for Nathan to find friendship and That's right. love. Yes. They're bringing that into the rehearsal a little bit, like with this latest one, yes. which I won't give too much away from, but you get the impression that he's kind of going like, you know, I could be your husband. Um, yes. And so that, that sort of like putting people in a really awkward situation type thing, I think is going to come out more and more. The other thing I would just say to bring the recommendation home, like Brian kind of laying out the first episode there might have sounded like almost a spoiler to people, but it's actually <laughs> it's what he described. It's just the setup. Like yes. Nathan Fielder has this amazing talent at just injecting more and more chaos and 
finding like increasingly bizarre people and just escalating the situation and the experiment time and time and time and time again. Yes. Just, yeah, that classic Nathan for you, things getting wildly out of hand in the most wonderful of ways. Yeah. The first episode has like some weirdos in it. The second episode, the two main people involved the are like, <laughs> whoa, there's a lot happening particularly when they go back to the guy's apartment to get his stuff. There's stuff going on that it's like, wait, I wasn't prepared for this to come out. It's really wonderful. Yeah, I, I absolutely love it. So far, it feels like another level up from Nathan for you. I think because in part the budget went so far up that they are using a hydraulic press to crack open a pistachio. It's stunning. I couldn't agree more. It's amazing. I'm very curious to see where it goes. So HBO now has, has that and How To with John Wilson, which is also a Nathan Fielder produced thing, which is stunning. I picked up um, How To with John Wilson. Like, I watched the full first season, loved it. Yeah. Started the second season, also loved it. And just for whatever reason, just dropped. Yep, totally. So I've got like four or five episodes left that I just need to pick up again and just get through. But yeah, another one I would also co-endorse definitely if anyone's yes. not checked that out. I love that HBO is now in the Nathan Fielder business to some extent, yeah, and yeah. they're funding these projects, which are big and hard to make. The how-to with John Wilson is just an achievement. The level of footage collection and then thematic unification that, that goes on in them is, is insane. Well, okay, I don't have a separate pop, and I'm just going to join in on you with that. So there's no like non-awkward way to be like, so I was looking at your Twitter but, Matt, you seem to be a big fan of other HBO shows that we enjoy. I saw you like this. There's no other, there's no non-awkward way to say, <laughs> oh, no. I saw that you liked my tweet. <laughs> but yeah, I, I know what you're going to mention. But yeah, yeah, go on. <laughs> Just Barry, Succession, Sopranos. There are a lot of good HBO shows. And you like The Wire. I have not seen The Wire yet, but it is up next on my list. Wire is great. Can I give a bit of a tip with The Wire too? I mean, everyone agrees that it's one of the greatest shows of all time. But I think sometimes someone will pick it up and they go, oh, I don't get it like everyone else does. And this is one of the, what makes the show great. It's so dense, like in terms of just the detail, the structure of how everything works yep. and like who the characters they are and what purpose they serve. And it takes some time, right? Like yeah. seasons two, three. Oh, I wouldn't even say that much. It's just for those like first three to five, maybe even six episodes or so. You just need to pay really close attention. Yes. And it can be a little bit taxing for some people, but like once you acclimate, it's no longer that taxing. You can kind of sit back and just enjoy it and watch it unfold after that. But just like yeah. bear in mind, there is that sort of ramp up that you need to acclimate to in the first like half of the first season-ish. Totally agree. I found the beginning to be incredibly slow and confusing. And only after kind of getting mostly into the first season, I was like, okay, that's McNulty. Okay, great. Now I understand that. There's a lot going on. I'm going to also throw out, if you like The Wire, The Shield is a really great show that I feel like not a lot of people talk about, starring Michael Chiklis and Walton Goggins. Is Clint Close in it? CCH Pounder? Like, really incredible actors and kind of went under the radar, but is a fantastic show that it's not police friendly. <laughs> like, you know, the <laughs> anti-hero is this complete monster of a cop and it kind of investigates him and what his actions do to 
the people and communities around him. How hateable is Walton Goggins' character? He's just so good at being hateable. It's been a while since I've seen this, but yeah, he's, you know, he's Walton Goggins. Like, <laughs> <laughs> But yes, I'm super excited to watch The Wire. Brian is watching The Sopranos for the first time as part of our Patreon series that yes. we do with another friend of ours. You haven't finished it yet? I'm like four episodes in. Oh my God, I'm so jealous. Right? <laughs> Here's the yeah. reason I've talked about this. I haven't seen The Sopranos because I grew up in North Jersey and it feels like I experienced a lot of the places. Look, I, I have no organized crime connections that I'm willing to admit to on the <laughs> microphone. But Tony Soprano is like all of my father's friends. And, right. you know, it reminds me a lot of home. And I put some distance between me and it for a while because I was like, oh, I don't know about this. My parents love the show. Couldn't get enough of it. I just kind of didn't really do it. And now that I'm watching it, I'm like, oh yeah, I should have watched this years ago. It's awesome. We really need to A, record with Jory again. B, you need to rewatch the episodes we've already seen without us doing bits over them the entire time. Yes. Because it's so fucking good. I did like maybe like my third entire series rewatch recently. It's just, fuck. Let's move on to our next and final segment. Oh, right. Yeah, we have another segment. Uh, Welcome to the final segment. It's three parts gratitude exercise, one part petty grousing, and it's called Peaches and Lemons. And the theme song goes right here. Peaches and Lemons. Peaches and Lemons. Fucking incredible. That was the theme song. We're each going to start with a lemon, which is a thing that is a minor bummer, annoyance, what have you. Yeah, I can go first on this. Last week... You may have heard on the podcast, I talked about, wow, I have a free week. Well, I got sick and it completely fucked my week. Now I'm catching up on a week's worth of work. I was like, oh, I have like two chill weeks. No, I had one awful week and now I have a chaotic week. And such is modern illness, but I'll get it all done. It's fine. But I was looking forward to a week of like ticking off boxes on a a list of to-dos and didn't pan out. So that's my lemon, is now I got a, too much shit to do this week. Murphy's Law, huh? Yep. I'll do my lemon really fast. I was doing wet sanding, and I should have been wearing gloves for this. What does that mean, wet sanding? Like used wet sandpaper? Yeah. Okay, just, I'm just asking. Oh, sanding resin stuff. Okay. I wasn't trying to be defensive. What? I didn't say you were. Okay. Anyway, I was wet sanding. <laughs> I probably should have been wearing gloves. <laughs> For this particular action. One of my favorite interactions we've ever had. <laughs> what? Just immediately hostile. <laughs> I love it. Please continue. That's where we are, episode 128. Yeah. I was sanding, right? Should have been wearing gloves. This is my third time saying this. Anyway, ever since then, my hands have been incredibly fucked up and dry. And as a chronic like skin and cuticle picker, I am in hell. Because mm. a normal thing, you would see your hands be dry and be like, mm, I should moisturize those. I should take care of those. And instead, my little goblin rat brain is like, oh, but what have you peeled it off? Uh, so that's where I am right now. And it does not feel great. So that's my lemon. All right. Matt, do you have a lemon? So I kind of cheated with this one. And I feel bad because we already kind of extended the what's popping segment quite a bit, but um, I kind of <laughs> bought in a lemon that would give me an excuse to bring in a second. Great. What's do popping. It. I love, I love it. Gaming the system. 
So it starts with something that's absolutely not a lemon, but Better Call Saul, the final episodes airing right now, and just yes, they are. nothing about it is a lemon, just the acting and the writing and the cinematography and the montages. The just amazing, amazing show. Cannot stress enough how amazing it is, which leads me to my lemon. If you look at the ratings between Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad, it can be extrapolated that there are literally millions of people who watched Breaking Bad, presumably loved Breaking Bad, because everyone who's watched Breaking Bad does love Breaking Bad, probably millions of people who would say Breaking Bad is one of their favorite shows of all time, who have, with seven years to do it, not picked up and gotten into Better Call Saul. And it drives me fucking nuts. Yep. Um, that's my lemon. That is heartbreaking and true. So personally, me, I'm a season behind. I just wanted to wait until it was all out. I fucking love the show so much. And it's so heartbreaking when you tell people to watch it and they're like, oh, I, don't know, I watched the first season. I'm not really. It's like, no, it's objectively no. the better show. It's <laughs> yes. a better show in every way. I love Breaking Bad. It's amazing. But Better Call Saul is like, Whew, up there. It's at least as good, like bare minimum, bare, bare, bare minimum. And the thing that annoys it is what they will invariably say is there's like two objections. One is that they think it's boring, which the second episode, and I'm sorry if this is a bit of a spoiler for anyone who's listening who hasn't watched any better Call Sleepy. The second episode of the first season has him negotiating a guy down from being skinned alive to having his legs broken. Yep. Or a leg broken. Two guys, you know, two guys, one leg each. What is boring about this? What other shows are you watching that this is boring by comparison? I guess Breaking Bad maybe, but... But also the, it's at the hands of a character from Breaking Bad. Yeah, yeah. The second one is a similar vein to the boring, but it's sort of similar, but it's different. And I get this one more, but it's still kind of wrong, is that it's slow. Because it's a prequel and they obviously can't get to the destination, it's obviously going straight away. There is an element of that. Like Vince Gilligan and his team are so talented at this. Like no scene, nothing that anyone ever does is not directly geared to what needs to lead to what happens next. It never feels to me like people are just sitting around talking and there's no point to anything. So it's not that kind of slow. I don't even really acknowledge that the first season or two are slow. I don't think they are. It's just that- No, I agree. The cartel stuff doesn't heat up properly until around season three, but yeah. it's still interesting as hell and the characters are just amazing and, and so involving. I often think about someone 20 years ago who hears there's a new Bob Odenkirk, Michael McKean show and is like, oh dude, that's <laughs> going to be the funniest thing ever. <laughs> and- Honestly, it is at times like the humor is very strong and never feels forced or annoying. But yeah, I can't get enough of it. I'm completely up to date. New episode is out tonight. I'm sure I'll watch it first thing tomorrow. It's the best. It's such a bummer that it's ending and I'm very excited to see where they take it. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny too, because Breaking Bad, I love it very much. I think it is a fantastic show. It is also an incredibly campy cartoon. Sure. <laughs> And so by comparison, I'm sure for people who are like, ooh, fun drug murder, like the intricacies of elder law are by comparison less. But I feel like you see Vince Gilligan and co, you see a lot of traces of like later season Skylar where Skylar is also like scheming. And you kind of see like, they really like doing that. 
Better Call Saul is like that blown out into like, you just want a lot of scheming and scamming because it's the best. Yep. I love the schemes. Oh, the scheme in this latest season is phenomenal. Next level. It's many episodes long and it's fantastic. I'm so excited. (laughs) They give you just enough information that you can sort of understand what's happening, but you don't really know. And then it all comes together. Yeah. I love that too, that clever element of you didn't actually know the scheme. They've never quite done that before. Like the other ones they've done, they were amazing and intricate. You didn't always know exactly what the next step was, but you got the general idea. That's right. I love that one, and, and I won't spoil anything specific, but the one they did like a season or two ago where Huel gets in trouble and like oh. him and Kim decide we've got yep. to get Huel out of trouble. And that whole episode of just them putting it yep. together was just magical. Yep, on the bus. Yeah. Any Huel content is good content. I will watch Huel do anything he is great and i love fuel stuff he delivers one of my favorite lines in always sunny in philadelphia (laughs) oh yeah i can't give the exact context of this because it would be a a spoiler but just i'm a garbage man um (laughs) and just the way (laughs) like you have to watch it to understand but if you watch him say i'm a garbage man and the way he says it and the context he's saying it and if you go watch that episode you'll understand why it's one of my favorite lines in the whole thing Wow. That was a great lemon. Yes. <laughs> Very better call all of you to stealthily insert a yeah. what's popping into a lemon. All right. So now we'll do peaches and I'll run through mine real quick because I'm boring. <laughs> My first peach today is that I had a really tasty plum. I haven't had a plum in a long time. Good job. It was a really you. delicious plum. Thank you. Thank you. Can I ask, was it like one of the deep purple ones or was it a little on the lighter, kind of redder side? Oh, it was like black with like the nice light orangey yellow. God, it was so fucking good. The flavor ratio of a plum, of how just gentle and sweet the flesh is compared to like the flesh. God, it's so good. Yep. So yeah, ate a plum. Second peach, how do I say this without being incredibly boring? So been getting back into Civ Six, and I've been playing Eleanor of Aquitaine, who is super duper fun because of her loyalty city flipping mechanic. And it's been really difficult for me to get any sort of victory or like good game going with her because it takes so long for that to actually start working because you put great works around the borders of your empire and the more great works that you put in, other civs will be like, oh, fuck living in this civ. We want to be over there because they got cool art. And then you can like, peacefully dominate the entire thing because cities just keep flipping once that snowball gets rolling. But you have to survive and like not lose all your shit until, you know, like medieval era or whatever. I spent like three hours trudging through, like just barely trying to survive. And then there is a certain point where it started happening. And I've got to say that it's like one of the most satisfying moments in gaming for me of watching everything slowly start flipping. Anybody at home who likes Civ Six, also, if you do the Secret Societies mode and you sign up with the Void Singers, you get cultists, so you can send them into other cities and just like make everyone go insane. Also works great. Anyway, that's my second peach. Love Civ Six. It's the best. And my third peach is, honestly, I've been looking forward to this record so much and it's been so much fun. So Matt, thank you. This is the best. Oh, thank you. That's very nice. Oh, I've been looking forward to it too. Yeah, I listened to a few episodes and I wouldn't listen to three uh, just to find out what the show is about. Obviously, I, I enjoyed it. <laughs> it's a really nice hang podcast, which are the best kind of podcasts. So well, glad you. to be a part of it. Well, thank you. I mean, three episodes. I think that's the most episodes anyone's ever listened to. So congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, Peaches. What are your Peaches? My Peaches are 
YouTube commenters I wanted to bring in because I was actually listening to your podcast. I think it was with Cara Santa Maria, that trope come up of like, oh, the comments. But I actually find like with my channel and also when I'm on another channel and just like looking at what's in the community, vast majority of it really supportive and if not really supportive, kind of, you know, it is about the comment. It's not like just trolling. So I felt like YouTube commenters, a unfairly maligned group sometimes. So I just wanted to give a, a shout out to people who comment on <laughs> YouTube videos. Great. I always enjoy watching them come in when I premiere a new video. Also cooking channels. It's just my favorite way to unwind at the end of a day recently. So big shout out to two of my favorites, Sam the Cooking Guy. And a newer, smaller channel who deserves some shine is a channel called Sip and Feast, which is like sort of like kind of a classic Long Island dad kind of, you know, telling you how to put certain things together mm -hmm. and nice. yeah, just very sweet. So big fan of him. And my last peach was I had the beautiful rain. It's cats and dogs here in Christchurch at the moment, just raining something awful. And I'm not a huge rain guy, I'll admit. But when I used to work at a radio station, there was this woman who did this weekly gardening and cooking show. So basically how to grow your own vegetables and stuff and then make vegetarian food out of it. That was her weekly show. And she had this really serene, kind of a little bit hippie-ish, but in a good way, kind of presentation style. And it was a really rainy day in the office where she was finishing up the show. And I looked out the window and was just kind of looking into the misery I was about to have to walk off into uh, and get drenched on the way home. And as she was wrapping up the show, she was just going, so everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. Look <laughs> after yourself, take care, and remember to enjoy the beautiful rain. <laughs> um, and it just reframed everything for me. And I kind of went, you know yeah. what? Yeah. Just look on the positive end. Rain is beautiful. Be happy when you get a rainy day. Enjoy yes. the beautiful rain. So that's my last peach. I love it. Layton and I live in Southern California and rain is something we could use a lot more of <laughs> yeah. here being in yet another horrible drought. So yeah, I'm Woo. jealous of all that rain. It's always great when it rains and it's like, oh, grass is supposed to be green. Yes. <laughs> Trees are supposed to yeah. be green. All right. Peach time for daddy. Hold on. Never what? say that Sorry. again. Sorry. Say, say what? I said peach time. Don't. Yep. You did say peach time. Go ahead. Yeah. We can, we can roll the tape to make sure that, that, that that's what happened. <laughs> All right. I'm going to have two kid peaches because I got a great kid. Peach number one. Took her to softball today and we signed up for like summer softball clinic because she had a great time playing softball this spring, and it was like, let's do it again. Well, it turns out she's the only person at softball clinic, and it's just essentially a private lesson with her and a really awesome coach, and she loves it. This coach is great, and I was talking to him after her practice today, and he's like, she's doing so great. I think she should play more, and he thinks she's really got some talent at it. It's always fun to see when you have a kid, watch him be great at something. And you're like, oh, wow, this is cool. Let's open up opportunities and see where it goes. So that's one of the really fun things uh, as a parent. Peach number two is I went on a little hike with my daughter Audrey yesterday to Lime Kiln Canyon, which is a little like hiking nature area, kind of in the North Valley. And there's a big stream. She had gone there with her summer camp not too long before. It's a bit of a trek, but whatever. And she was like, I saw so many animals. And we went and we saw frogs, tadpoles, snails, 
when she went last time, she saw a crayfish, which I'm not convinced she did, but she claims she did a turtle. And she spent the whole time, like these little teeny frogs catching frogs, trying to bother tadpoles. And we just had the time of our lives. And it was great watching a kid like get filthy, scrounging around in the muck for frogs. <laughs> we also, she picked something up and I was like, put that down. I think it's a leech. And now I'm not sure it was a leech, but it might've been a leech. But also while she was like looking in this river, you know, searching for tadpoles. And then she goes, oh, this must be what the guardians feel like when they're looking for Link. Because <laughs> she is a Zelda fanatic and everything for her comes back to Breath of the Wild. What a fucking but, nerd. Oh my God. She's learning Hylian, by the way, at the moment, which is pretty great. If I could get back one thing that I kind of had as a kid is that ability to get the most mundane, not exciting, you know, elevated thing and be like, Oh my God, it's like, I'm a hero in that favorite book of mine. Oh. You know? I envy it <sighs> yes. so much. I wish I could get it back. She is in that permanently. <laughs> yeah. She is the hero of her own story and constantly is doing like superhero poses and flying around the house and yeah like this kid's brain never stops and there's some elaborate narrative that's constantly being constructed it's amazing to watch and okay final peach is for the first time in two years i went to lacma the los angeles county museum of art and it's undergoing a major <sighs> renovation right now but i wanted to go to a museum i hadn't been to lacma in a while and they had this fucking amazing piece out. It was called Central Meridian, The Garage by Michael C. McMillan. And it was like a timed entry thing. You had to get in a virtual queue. And then you walk in and it was a recreation of like a garage in the summer built by like a weird tinkerer. And you walk in this thing and there's like old tchotchkes all over. There's sound design. It was just really stunning. And it felt a little meow wolfy. It wasn't interactive at all. You weren't supposed to touch anything. You just kind of walk around and look at this stuff. But it was really, really cool, especially to walk in from, you know, a gigantic fucking art gallery in the middle of an art gallery. There's paintings all over. There's a Clifford Still abstract expressionist thing right across the room. And then you walk into this like summer garage in the South in the 60s. Like it was the last thing I did there that day. And it was a very cool and somewhat transcendent experience. So those are my peaches. I'm looking at pictures of it. It looks very neat. It'll be up for a while, and I highly recommend you go check it out. Hell yeah. Well, hey, that's our show. Yes, we did it, it folks. We did it. Matt, thank you so much for being here. This was just a total treat. So Yeah, this was awesome. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Happy to do it again sometime when we have more to uh, discuss. Oh, I think you and Leighton have an infinite number of things to discuss. <laughs> <laughs> I've watched a bunch of your videos, but Layton is a true, true super fan and has been talking about your stuff for a long time. And we're both very, very excited to have you on the show. So thank you for being here. All right. Thank you so much. I'm at a point where it's kind of surreal for me to talk to people in different corners of the world who are, you know, would describe themselves as fans. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a trip. So that's very, very sweet. And I uh, really appreciate it. If people who are listening to this show want to find you, your Patreon, your channel, your everything, where do they go? So the channel is called Mad Orchard Crime and Society. I'm thinking of changing it to M.O. Crime and Society. You know, like M.O., like Motors Operandi, maybe it could mm -hmm. kind of be good for branding, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe not, but 
for now, it's still definitely Mad Orchard Crime and Society, and I'm sure that'll find me on YouTube whether or not I change it. And on Twitter, I am at Real Matt Orchard. And I think that's really all I would want to plug. Great. All right. Amazing. Folks at home, thanks again for joining us on this episode of Late Night with Brian Wecht. And uh, hope, if you're listening to this, that you also get some beautiful, beautiful rain. Lovely. Bye. See, I, I can end the show normally. Oh. Well, except I interrupted your ending. Yeah, I, I completely <laughs> boofed your ending because uh, I How talked in the middle of it. How fucking dare you? I yeah, quit. Well. Leighton Night is produced by Brian Wecht, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Night, on Instagram at Leighton underscore night, or email us at LeightonKnight at gmail.com.